You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hey folks, hope you're having a great hump day. Uh, Before I introduce today's guest, I wanted to ask you, my fabulous listeners, to help support the podcast by rating the podcast on iTunes by giving it five stars. Um, The way iTunes works, it only counts things that get five star ratings, so please give five stars uh, if if you like it, of course. And this helps a lot with getting the podcast really rise in the rankings and it increases its outreach so I can get more young people to really listen to it and gain a broader perspective for their career journeys. And if you leave a review with the rating on iTunes, I will also give you a shout out on the next episode as well. And because I promise that uh, right now I want to thank Joe Khan for the wonderful review that you've left on iTunes. I really appreciate it. And to the rest of you who haven't left the review yet, I will read all the reviews. And so um, I hope really this inspires you to support the podcast, leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes. And sorry for the Android listeners out there. For some unfortunate reason, um, it seems I just can't do that with Google Play. And so Google, if you're listening, please make that change happen as well for all my Android leader uh, listeners. And so for today's podcast, it's with Upkar Arora, the CEO of Purpose Capital. And man, where, where to begin? Uh, Upkar has had a super fascinating career journey, and he is both a University of Waterloo accounting graduate and KPMG alum like myself. But his journey just takes him to all sorts of places like the Canadian Google of the 2000s, uh, which is called Nortel, and then to just various executive roles in companies in like real estate and that are doing weird investments in Africa or like Europe. And he's even part of a company that even files for bankruptcy and he has to go into the whole restructuring process of that like we dive into his transitions to becoming like a private equity investor creating his own consulting firm and making that essentially into a holding company where he starts buying out businesses and then to his current position where he just really lives on his passion for impact investing with purpose capital Um, he is also super passionate about career development and just overall life design and this is where um, we really go deeper into his perspective his learnings and the and really we go into learning about his popular career class that he teaches at Waterloo and just much more. This is really a talk that um, where I just, we don't go into the nitty gritty of a specific role, but we actually just go through how Upkar just found his North Star, just his why, his purpose, and how that helps him uh, in guiding his decision-making process. And so I really do hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Upkar Aurora. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. 
Today's guest is Apkar Aurora. Apkar, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Great pleasure to be here. Yeah, great. Uh, so for the audience, Apkar is the CEO of Purpose Capital. And Apkar, before we go deeper, could you explain to our audience uh, what Purpose Capital is, kind of like a brief business description? Sure. Purpose Capital is an impact investing advisory firm. And what that really means is that we advise clients on how to channel their their giving and their investing into ways that can have both financial return and social impact. And so our taglines, which probably represent what we do, are A, matter to the world, and B, we mobilize capital to accelerate social progress. Mm, okay, excellent. Just so, I guess, higher level, do more good for the world in a sense, right? Correct, that's yeah. right. And so before we go deeper into the impact side, which I'm definitely fascinated about, I wanted to take it a little more back, uh, look into the past. And I, I honestly had a little difficulty uh, prepping for this little chat of ours just because when I look at your LinkedIn description, it's highly overwhelming just because you've done so many things. But I think if, if I were to kind of run it out, um, you know, we, we got connected because we were both Waterloo alumni from the accounting and finance program. And I'm sure you've had a very material role in shaping it into the program that I uh, took part in. And so you started out as an auditor at KPMG and took what I would con- what looks like more of a traditional kind of finance route, t- went to Nortel and then became the B- VP of finance for another company. And then we kind of see a little switch up where you went to real estate um, and then you eventually go into a company that I had a hard time trying to pronounce or understand called Try As I Can. And then go into ONCAP, go into the more private equity route. Uh, ONCAP, for the audience who don't know, is the middle market private equity uh, team of Onyx. And then you go into become a CEO, CFO of multiple companies, and then become the CEO of Illumina Partners and CEO again of Purpose Capital. So there's a lot of stuff you've been doing. So where should I begin, Afkar? Where where should I begin to ask you in terms of where the decision process comes into play and um, yeah, like where do you want me to dig in for, from? Well, Daniel, it's always, it's always easy to put all that into context and say that I had a clearly defined roadmap and these were all logical, staged, purposeful decisions I made along the way. So I could do that, but it probably wouldn't be true. So I think the way to begin is perhaps starting to unpack some of those career moves in some way and trying to get to what was at the heart of those decisions as to why I would move from a KPMG to a Nortel, from Nortel to Olympia, New York, et cetera, and trying to understand that with the benefit of some hindsight, but also trying to put myself in the position of a 22 or 25 or 28 or 30-year-old making those decisions and looking forward to what I was hoping to do in the long term. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, and so then um, if you're good with that, I'd like to actually go deep into um, decisions you're making while you were in the finance realm of, okay, I'm, I'm going to leave audit, I'm going to go to Nortel. And yeah, what was, that a, what was that decision process and how did it go from there? I think I had an inkling very early on that I didn't want to stay in public practice. And that was even before I joined KPMG. And as, <laughs> as great as that experience was, and the people were terrific and they treated me really well, I think I knew that wasn't my long-term role. And so I actually wasn't looking to move, but I thought long-term I wouldn't be staying there. And I did happen to get a call from a, a recruiter that said, would you be interested in joining? At that point it was, it is not now. At that point it was Canada's high-tech darling. 
public company spun out of Bell Canada, doing some amazing things in the telecom space, multinational, et cetera. And so it started, it started to feel quite appealing. And so I said yes to the interview and eventually got the job. There were a couple things that attracted me there, and this is going to be perhaps a recurring theme. Nortel had a program called an FMP program, which is Financial Management Program, where they'd bring in MBAs and CAs, and they'd essentially put them through a different set of experiences where you'd stay in one position for six to nine months, move to another role, and so on, both within the Toronto operation, of which there were many divisions, and outside. And so that opportunity to go and not be in a, in a narrowly defined role in one area working for one group or one boss was actually quite appealing that I would be able to move around and learn. And so that's really the, the, the word that I would focus on, an opportunity to learn from a company that was considered leading edge on the cusp of doing something very, very significant, big enough and complex enough to actually have opportunities for meaningful growth from a professional standpoint. That was really the attraction. And then the FMP program had as a side benefit that there was a lot of people like me. So a great young atmosphere. We had squash teams and we had soccer teams and volleyball teams, a fitness center. And so the opportunity from a social standpoint to actually have a lot of people that were in my peer group, young, excited, ambitious, and wanting to do other things was actually quite attractive at the time as well. Yeah, it kind of sounds like it, it was like the Google of that time. You're, you're making it sound like all the perks and the amenities are very uh, Silicon Valley-esque. Yeah, so so they had a, they built a brand new facility in the division I was at in Bramley. They had a fitness center, and as I said, we were on numerous, so every night there would be something going on that was socially slash athletic oriented with typical drinking of beer after the at the pubs. But, you know, so there was always something that was quite social about it as well, which created, again, a benefit from an overall uh, experience standpoint. Mm-hmm. And so with, with all that, um, I guess, experiencing all the different departments, getting more breadth um, that you may have, you know, yearned for back in the audit days, you ended up moving, though, um, into a VP of finance role at another company. And was that just a natural shift where you were continuously building upon that mental model of is it a growing company, is it leading edge, am I going to learn without the continued mental model in that decision? It certainly was, but I would actually say that all those aspirations and expectations of Nortel actually didn't come to fruition. And uh, the short answer is I was bored silly. I was, the work was not very, was not very exciting, it was not very interesting. The people I worked with, it was a unionized environment, which made it a little bit more challenging in certain ways. It was a manufacturing company. And so all the appeal that one has from an outsider standpoint didn't transform or transfer into reality. So I joke that the hardest decision I made at Nortel in my year and a half might have been what was the color I would use to print out charts for the controller to to review the quarterly results for the for the division. I'm being a little bit facetious. But so there wasn't really that learning opportunity that I was hoping for. And so when the opportunity came again, getting a call to, and, and the positioning was, uh, again, a large company growing rapidly, multiple divisions um, run by five senior executives, that opportunity to be close to something that was, was growing and vibrant and in multiple areas uh, geographically, diverse or dispersed as well, was actually quite interesting to me. And it was more of a finance role, whereas that the Nortel role was more of an analyst role in financial planning, uh, you know, budgeting and reporting and so forth. So it seemed to have broader, uh, a broader ambit, a broader mandate, and the opportunity to work closely with five senior executives and learn 
was quite appealing at that time. Mm-hmm. And from that finance role, you moved on to, uh, so you, you did a bit of telecom, and then you go into uh, finance role, and then you kind of transition into more of like an invest. It seemed like an investing role in real estate um, after that. And is that am I accurate in that interpretation? And how did that kind of come about? Well, I think if you look at the nature of the real estate sector and some other sectors that we were involved with, it's capitally it's capital intensive, which means we have to raise capital all the time. The company I was with, which was Olympian York, run by the Reichman family, had a huge asset base. It was both in North America and, for example, we built World Financial Center and we were building Canary Wharf at the time, which wow. is back in the late 80s. We had just acquired the rights to build Canary Wharf. So it was a very capital-intensive industry. And so what that end, it's a transactional industry where there's acquisitions of real estate assets and there's sales. And so in order to finance our growth and the future developments like Canary Wharf, there was a lot of activity related to financing and financing structures. And so it wasn't really an investment role as much as it was how do we manage from a capital or finance standpoint the growth of the organization, especially related to funding our Canary Wharf operation, which at that time was costing us about $80 million a month, so a billion dollars a year, and that was just after the initial investment had been made. So huge capital requirements re- resulted in a need to be very conscious about our cost of capital, availability of capital, and the structure of that capital. And so I did evolve into doing a lot of financing transactions, oversaw a derivatives portfolio, a marketable securities line, and I think we were on the cusp or on the leading edge of finance structures that were so complex and hadn't been done in the world. You know, for example, my boss did the first interest rate swap in Canada in 1987, 1986, actually, with BMO. We were just working through that. It had not been done before. We were doing cross-currency swaps. We were using derivative structures at a time that these were unheard of things, especially for a Canadian company, thanks to, at that time, the brilliance of Paul Reichman. And so it was really fascinating and groundbreaking and leading edge in some ways to really get exposed to that. So that was amazing. Wow. Um, and at, at this period, you're, you know, you're relatively, I think, early in your executive experience that, um, you know, you're a VP now and no longer doing analyst work. At this point, do you feel that you kind of had an, uh, an understanding or maybe realization of, okay, I think I want to take my life this direction compared to another direction? Did you have any form of clarity? I didn't, and I would probably say that Assuming I was a VP in that role would be an overstatement because I really was, for the most part, an assistant VP to the CFO. But I think what happened was that growth curve, and that growth curve when I talk about the learning opportunity, was very significant for me. And it actually ramped up, didn't diminish, when Olympia New York went into bankruptcy in May of 1992, one of the biggest corporate bankruptcies in Canadian history and probably globally at that time anyway. And so what happened was the senior management team was essentially um, told to leave. And then they looked around and said, who knows something about this company when all the consultants and the advisors and the lawyers came in? And I was one of those people that you know, was, was around and knew something about the company. So the experience I got in that 18-month period of post-bankruptcy to develop a restructuring plan and work with some world-class people, whether they're people like David Brown, who went on to become the chair of the OSC, or, or the people from Wolfenson & Son who rescued Chrysler from the brink, but just world-class people, was unbelievable. I probably packed 10 years of learning, 
by absorbing and listening and being part of that team of people as a junior, really as stepping up into that role, it was just tremendous learning for me. And so I couldn't have asked for a better opportunity to learn from. And mm -hmm. so that really helped me to develop and compress a lot of learning in a very short time frame. Mm. So the theme there is, again, continued learning and growth opportunities. And then from there, just to take the next step, when Paul Reichman asked me to join him to try to build a new company out of the ashes of Olympian York, and he started with a secretary himself and two other people, again, the opportunity to work for someone at that level directly was incredibly, you know, it was flattering, but incredibly uh, positive. And so I took that opportunity as, as the next step in that growth journey. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing kind of a theme here where we're, I'm noticing that you, the companies that you're working for are getting smaller and smaller as it progresses and the learning opportunities continue to get bigger and bigger. Um, might be a function of size. I don't want to make any you know, assumptions. But I think another, something that when I think about it, it's actually quite uh, funny when I think about it in a sense is when, when I was in accounting in school and a lot of my friends, we talk about being accountants and a, a big reason people want to go into that realm or actually just work for any big conglomerate is they say, oh, I want the job security. You know, I, this company's not really going to go bankrupt and I'll be safe. And, but from your experience, like even when I think about it, I feel there could be so much you could learn from, you know, these small companies that are growing quickly and yeah, they have the risk of bankruptcy, but most of the times when they do get bankrupt, Usually the higher, you know, the, the top heads fall off and usually the lower ones are cheaper to maintain and they'll come in to kind of fill those shoes. And so I'd, I might actually argue that you might actually get way more opportunity at a company that potentially has a risk of bankruptcy because you're going to go in at a lower level anyways. Um, and I think your experience is definitely a way, an example to potentially reframe that uh, thought process itself. Um, it's an interesting question. Um, I would say it's probably situation-specific. In our you. case, uh, Olympia New York did not end up surviving as a separate company. And so, unfortunately, that meant all the employees, literally all the employees, um, were ultimately out of a job at Olympia New York. And so whether you were good or bad or old or young or a lifelong uh, employee or not, junior or senior, you actually didn't have a job at the end of the day. Now, some people stayed to do some of the, some of the wind-up and so forth, but... Uh, so I think it really is situation specific, but I think maybe generalizing what you've said is that people might perceive the overall issue to be problematic, uncertain, insecure, but within that you could actually find incredible opportunities for personal growth and development in some way, even within a smaller subset of a larger organization. So I would certainly agree with that. <laughs> yeah, and in, in terms of even the experience with the bankruptcy itself, like. You know, you're, from what I can tell, and obvious by a resume, even your early resume, you def are definitely a high performer. Um, and when that kind of event happens, did you did you take it personally? Did you, um, like if, if I were to imagine that a company went bankrupt at, at a place that I was working at, I would feel that I might have an inkling to even like think like, oh man, I failed in making this the right decision. Like now I'm in this kind of situation. Did you ever ha have that kind of feeling? I would say I didn't. And the reason I didn't was maybe two or three things. One is I wasn't actually making the decisions. I would be you know, overemphasizing my role to say I was making the decisions. 
that had an impact on, and in terms of the factors that led to the company's bankruptcy, that would be one. The second I would say is, did I provide or was I doing my part to ensure that the leadership team, you know, the, the senior execs and the leadership team, was aware of the issues that we face with respect to being able to fund and finance our future growth based on what we could see happening in the future? And the answer was, yes, we were. Um, what I did learn from that experience was that an entrepreneur, the strength and sometimes the challenge with entrepreneurs is that they are incredibly optimistic and incredibly positive and incredibly determined. And so raising issues about the concerns that we might face if we didn't get adequate financing or funding were actually met with, don't worry, we have that under control because we are working on or we're going to do A, B, C, and D. And when you have a, an entrepreneur that's incredibly knowledgeable, experienced, passionate, determined, and optimistic, it's hard to counter that as much as I might be you know, a strong, hardcore, analytica, analytical, numbers-driven individual, it's really hard to counter that. So I still would have been you know, 26, 27, 28 years old during that time. So it's hard to challenge someone who's built an, an empire, an enterprise worth $25 billion to say, hey, hold on. And so I would say, was I silent? The answer is no. Did I make the decisions? The answer is no. Did I learn from the decisions? Absolutely. So I could have a more informed and perhaps more valuable role in the future. So survival is what needs to come first before growth, before a lot of other things. And we need to focus on that for all businesses to make sure they're sustainable. Mm -hmm. And in terms of your personal career, you've survived and you move on to go full-time full, full time into investing in private equity companies uh, at ONCAP. And can you talk about like that decision? Like, Why did you want to move into an investing role now instead of going back and trying to help build up another company in more of the operational sense? I think I felt at that time, and this would have been after the Olympia New York and Paul Reichman and now six years at Trizacon working both in Canada, the U.S., and, uh, and in Europe, I felt that I had experience in understanding a little bit how business worked and what differentiated good companies from not so good companies. And in fact, I'll just come back to, I think I'm a student of business and have been for a very long time. Even my master's thesis was based on predicting corporate failure. So that's back in 1985 where I did a, a very detailed assessment of could we have predicted effectively failure or success of companies using a very detailed logistic regression model. So I've been, I've been obsessed with this concept of how do we differentiate between companies that do well and companies that don't do well? What is the secret sauce? What is the difference? What do we look at? How do we change our decision-making processes? And how do we predict success or failure? So if you think about what private equity is in VC investing as well in earlier stage companies, it's really about having some basic information and allowing or trying to create a framework or a thought process about how do we differentiate company A from company B that might be in the same sector, exposed to the same external dynamics. How do we develop some differentiated thinking about what to look for that would give us clues or insights to that? So that's what that's what PE investing is. So I think I felt at that time that I had a bit of knowledge and experience to allow me to differentiate good companies from great companies from weak companies and also the operational experience to actually provide value-added advice and expertise in how to make those companies more successful, more stable, more sustainable. 
And so OnCap Investment Partners, which was the fund focused on that mid-market, was an opportunity to try to put that uh, to the test to see if, in fact, we were able to do that. And so were you successful when you put it to the test? Um, well, so I will say that the team itself is outstanding and very successful. The team of Michael Lay and uh, Mark Gordon and Mark McTavish that I started off with was successful. I didn't stay at ONCAP that long. We raised the money, we closed the fund, and I actually chose to leave ONCAP and joined uh, a company that was actually going public to take them public. So I didn't stay at ONCAP very long. Um, and that would be explained by it for a number of reasons, but I would sort of characterize it as perhaps um, culture, a uh, little bit culture, a little bit of uh, uh, of a desire to be more involved in those companies directly as opposed to a little bit more passive as an investor as opposed to in the company doing the implementation and change and growth and so forth, but for a number of reasons. So I didn't stay long enough, but I will tell you that ONCAP itself has been extremely successful thanks to the team there. Mm-hmm. And so after ONCAP, you go on to help uh, another a different company, um, prepare for its IPO. And is this around the same time when you decided to also create Illumina Partners as well and operate that simultaneously? It was a little bit before that. So this would have been just you know, pre-dot-com for those of, in your audience who are old enough to remember that, which was the beginning of the end. It was April 2000. But it was uh, just before then. And we eventually did go public in October 2000 and so forth. But I think what happened through that experience was, and this is actually interesting from a from an accounting or finance standpoint is valuations at that time were completely insane. Perhaps you'd argue some of them are insane today as well, <laughs> but completely insane. And so, you know, we were valued by the big investment banks at $1.5 billion with zero revenue based on the dot-com euphoria that had, had gripped uh, the public markets at that point in time. And when we went public and when that uh, dot-com bubble burst and when that company eventually, that stock price did fall as did many others, it sort of got me back to thinking about more fundamentals, more, more basics, and also about working with companies where I'd have a direct hands-on role to help them build, grow, build and grow. Um, and so we ended up focusing on Illumina was created to be an advisor, a boutique advisory firm, to help mid-sized companies, provide them with the expertise to help them grow their businesses sort of ended up evolving because we found out a lot of these companies needed capital as well. So we ended up buying five companies and turning them around and and then exiting and so forth. So providing both capital and management expertise. But it was much more of a direct hands-on role involved with all facets of the operation as opposed to a narrow subset of the operation, either finance, M&A, biz dev, or something else. So it gave me the broader view of all the aspects that affect a company's performance, especially the people aspect. And that's where I sort of got my learning in, my training in, and made lots of mistakes in learning about what really drives a company's success. And I sort of have summarized it in some ways by saying, you know, it's numbers that drive the business, but it's people that drive the numbers. So if you pay attention, if you don't pay attention to the people that are driving the numbers, you actually will not have a successful business. And that sort of uh, caused me to embark on a I'm trying to get a deeper understanding of people and the human behavioral aspects of what drives and motivates people. Oh, that uh, sounds like music to my heart um, for even, I think, the, the audience members who listen to the podcast or read my blogs, they all, I think, should get an idea that I found ones who do also believe that um, the people and the culture, like the organizational development, the design of it, are actually the most, I think, what I consider the most instrumental part and the material part to 
creating any form of a sustainable enterprise. Um, and for you, when you were creating a Luna Partners, it's kind of a, you've evolved from now being an investor into going into an operator and you said, oh, you know what, I'm gonna start my own entrepreneurial venture and create my own company and help companies in that way. What was the decision process behind all that? Like, was it a very fluid thing where it, it just you just knew this was going to be the route that you were going to take? Um, can you like take me through like the step by step? Sure. I think in retrospect it was. I think all yeah. the experiences I had in my career path is not linear by any stretch of the imagination. All the experiences I had in all the companies, and I have to say I I was able to learn from some amazing leaders, whether that's Peter Monk, Jerry Schwartz, Paul Reichman, and others, but. All those experiences I had in those companies was, I felt it preparing me for, for, for me to be able to take on that step myself. Because all those companies were still funded and financed by someone else. They were, whether it's public or private. I didn't have sort of my own capital in. I had stock options in the case of Trizic, but it wasn't as if I had invested my own money into those enterprises. And so it was really a way, again, of putting myself through that test of saying, can I actually put my own money in, acquire a company, invest in its growth, and or turn it around and ultimately realize value from that? And so it provided me with that opportunity. And so I'd say the thought process was I've learned a lot from a lot of other people. There are certain learnings you can you actually need to make mistakes and learn from failure and trying things. You know, that's the whole concept in, in a sense of design thinking a little bit is actually to ideate prototype you know, test it out, and, you know, often you fail and you have to pivot. And so I think I learned a lot through trying things and doing as opposed to listening, observing, participating, and supporting. And so I think that was necessary for my growth and my learning. And it, um, it allowed me to do two other things. So some of the situations I had been involved with in other organizations, I would say there was a, there was a difference in terms of values uh, between my personal values and the values of an organization and one of the ways to deal with that is to create your own organization because then it's your, it's your tone at the top, it's your values, it's your what you believe and what you don't believe that comes to be embodied as the DNA or the driving force in an organization from a value standpoint. So when we created Illumina, I created it with a friend of mine, David Wright. We started off with our actually our statement of core values. We had no idea what we wanted to do, but we started off with a statement of core values and the opening line in that statement of core values really referred to our, our, our need to be thinking about it more broadly. So we use the words that profit is not the end, it's a means to an end, and we have a, we have a responsibility to our stakeholders, which include our, the people that work for us, the communities in which we reside or operate, the suppliers, and you know the broader group of stakeholders that we would think about really making sure we took care of in that ecosystem. And so we start off with a statement of core values. And so it was a reaction to wanting to continue to grow, wanting to experience, wanting to learn by doing, feeling that, again, I had some experience to or value to add, and also making sure that the values alignment was there, which became problematic in certain situations I had been involved with previous to that. Mm -hmm. And as you're operating Illumina and you're acquiring companies and operating them, you eventually decide, you know what, I'm going to start another company, and I'm going to be the CEO of another company. And so you started Purpose Capital um, after that. And why why did you create a whole separate company to do something different? Um, or instead of like just evolving Illumina into that, like what was the uh, thought process there? So Illumina was, as much as we started off with values, was still a for-profit entity based on providing advisory services and or acquiring companies, et cetera. 
But what had been nagging at me for a number of years, and this is not unique to me, is that um, while I did my day job, you know, Daniel, I might take you back to where I started, which is when I was going to get my CA. I worked at KPMG as a co-op student. We did a lot of audit of hospitals. And I always assumed that I would get my CA and work at a hospital. And the reason for that was I thought hospitals save lives. They serve the communities. What better way to still have a business orientation, get my CA, but also do something that's good for the community. So my influences are from a very young age that the importance of service or community service or doing something that benefits people other than just for the sake of profit maximization has been very, very core to who I am. And I've tried to live that in the volunteering that I do or in the, in the charities I support, et cetera. So Illumina is a for-profit company, but nagging at me is we've done well. We have made money for both our clients and perhaps for ourselves. But what have I done to change the world? And so this nagging thought about I do my day job with a for-profit company. We make money and we help companies I want to make money. And then I go volunteer or donate to charities. But is there a way I can integrate that too? And the question that sort of nagged at me was, can I combine the desire to have social impact with the skill sets that I have, which come from a for-profit world, hardcore finance, analytical, business thinking, you know, skills? How do I combine that? And so Purpose Capital, which I actually acquired, I didn't start, just to be clear, had been around for seven or eight years before I actually made that move in 2017, um, was really started with the purpose of doing impact investing. So we started off with the discussion of what does it do? So they had already thought about that, and they had looked at the macro trends the co-founders had and said there's a need and uh, there's an opportunity here to really combine return plus impact in a meaningful way. So it gave me a platform from which to actually achieve that desire to integrate and create more alignment between what I did, what I'm good at, and the desire to actually make a difference in people's lives. So it was a vehicle. I'd been dabbling in it through private investments, personal investments in renewable energy and community bonds and other stuff. But this actually gave me a, a legitimate platform to do that, benefiting from the experience of eight, seven or eight years of experience in that space with clients, with a name, with a brand, with experience. And so it allowed me to do that and try to leverage that going forward. Hmm. What did you want to be when you were seven, like when you were a little child? Huh. Um, I'm not sure I had a clear vision of what I wanted to do, but I do want to. I do want to sort of respond to your question, perhaps in a convoluted way, because it relates to something that does drive me. When someone said um, something about the question was, "How do you define being rich?" Right, and um, and my answer was not a traditional answer of uh, big house, big car, big house, and so forth. It was actually for me to be able to pay people to do the things that I don't want to do, right? So it was actually about freedom of choice, right? It's about being in a position where you can make your own choices and you feel that you have the ability to choose as opposed to you need to or there's a necessity. And so as you know, what drives us, and there are lots of, there's lots of research that show this, what drives us when we don't have income is we do need to make certain choices to be able to cover the basics. And so there's a direct correlation, the research shows, between income level and happiness, but it stops at about fifty or $60,000. And after that, there isn't a direct correlation about that because the basics are covered. And so, so I would say it wasn't for me about building a large amount of wealth. It was really about having the flexibility and freedom 
to choose how to spend my time, who to spend it with, choosing what I wanted to work on, what was interesting and appealing to me, and not be in a situation where I felt compelled that I had to do it because I had either a financial commitment or obligation. And so I, I might not have had a clear vision of what I wanted to be um, when I grew up, but I did have a vision of I wanted to be somewhat independent or autonomous or have the flexibility to do stuff that I wanted to do, whatever that was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, I ask because it, it's, I think it's uh, knowing why you do things, like the, the purpose, some people call it the purpose, some people call it your mission, like Simon Sinek called it your why. Mm-hmm. I think um, that the why is something that I've constantly been asking myself and I talk about it a lot in my own journals and I think it's something that continues to evolve and there are moments where in my own like short career where I've had sparks of oh this is this is why this is why I'm doing this, this is why I would do uh, you know this job or I would compete in parliament like, there are certain moments when it hits you and it continuously I, I see it getting reinforced for you what uh, would you care to share what your what you believe your why is and how has that kind of evolved or and or are there kind of spark moments that you remember vividly of yeah this is what I knew yeah and so I take you back to when I grew up and we came to Canada when I was young I was about eight years old we settled in London Ontario through a fluke uh, fluke uh, coincidence um, and at that time London uh, and it's changed a little bit now London was was very homogenous. And so as a, as a visible minority, we certainly stood out. So when I grew up, I experienced a lot of racism, a lot of discrimination, some bullying, and certainly was an outsider for the vast majority of my elementary and secondary school, which I did in London. And sort of the, so what is, if I look back and reflect upon the why, I think I've come to the conclusion, and it sort of happened in the last five or seven years, that the why for me was has been about, and I didn't realize it at the time, has been about making sure that someone in my position, being an outsider, being different, being discriminated against, or something like that, isn't exposed to the same challenges or obstacles that I faced. It's about making the world a better place so that there is more opportunity or equality of opportunity or access in some way or resources in some way or role models in some way. And so it's actually about the next generation. It's actually not about me per se. It's about, I look at my kids and I look at you and I look at the students I teach at Waterloo. It's about how do we make the world better for them and for their kids to make sure they have access to those opportunities that we had to struggle, I had to struggle with. I had to overcome those those biases and those prejudices and so forth. And I feel really fortunate and really grateful, and I owe a debt of gratitude to Canada for being the place that has allowed me to have the opportunity to succeed. But not everyone's that fortunate. Not everyone has those opportunities. So, so I'd say the why is really about thinking through and making changes that provides that that access. Because ultimately, we can talk about um, we can talk about leadership and business and all that stuff. But ultimately. Leadership to me is about having someone realize their full potential, right? If they never get those opportunities to actually come and, and be present in those, then we're missing out on those, on those opportunities. And so it so really is about um, finding ways to give people the access, the opportunity, and the benefit of, of realizing their full potential in some way. And that's, um, that's, a, 
I'm going to say it's a, an epiphany or a new sort of approach, or at least my view of leadership, is really that's where leaders excel, is actually identifying the spark, identifying the unique and latent talent, the identifying and then finding a way to manifest, to reinforce, to support that person from realizing what their potential is. And sometimes in some of those communities that you and I have been involved with, in giving them more confidence about their abilities that they have themselves. And so, um, so I think the, the why is really about those opportunities. Yeah, no, definitely. I 100% agree with you. I think, um, I remember if it was a job interview or like an interview question, they asked me, what was the moment that uh, that's your most proudest moment? And I like, had to like rack my brains through it. And I, I didn't want to give up what I would consider to be a bad answer. Like obviously there's no bad answers, but when I actually really thought about it, I realized it wasn't, um, you know, but like me winning a world championship in powerlifting or any like job I got. It was this one time when I was at um, the student bar in Waterloo, the bomber um, bar, and this, this random guy I'd never met before, he obviously had a couple of drinks, he came up to me and he just tapped me on the shoulder. And you know, it's, it's so normal for me to be talked about by guys and women at a bar. And so the guy comes up to me and he goes, Hey man, I you know this is gonna sound weird, but I've I've been at the gym and I've seen you at the gym for the last like three years, and you're always there and you're so small but you're so strong, so that's why I decided to go to the gym more to be like strong like you. So thanks, man. And he just went away. I don't even remember his name, but like that's that I I talked about that as like yeah, that's probably the most proudest moment. Total stranger, and it's just just doing something to be able to inspire someone to do better to do something that they might have not done before. And I think there are these kinds of moments where you kind of hit up on, yeah, I think that's kind of why I would do this, why I want to continue doing something else, even without like pay, like where you said, profit is just the means to an end. Right. And like, I think Disney talks about how, oh, we, we, make, we make money to make movies, not movies to make money. Right, right. And there's a great uh, there's a great social enterprise. I think it's based in Michigan called uh, I think it's Brownstone Bakery, um, and it's uh, uh, what it's and they provide some of the brownies for um, for uh, Ben and Jerry's ice cream, um, and I think the mission's about we hire employ you know we make brownies to employ people right. So it's all about the, it's not the end product. It's really about the people product. I want to just build on what you said so that inspiration, I think, is really both fulfilling, but I think it goes to something else that we've sort of had a conversation on, which is sometimes it can be very deliberate. The way you, the work you're doing now is very deliberate about trying to inspire people as they think about their careers and their future opportunities. And sometimes it can be not as deliberate. But what it does point to is that if you hold that as an important, um, something that's important to you, you actually change yourself in that because then you start to realize that that how I behave, what I say, what language I use, what actions I demonstrate may have a very powerful impact on people, not because, I, not because I'm standing in front of a room speaking, but based on how I treat someone I see that may not have the same you know, benefits or privileges as I do, um, the language I use, the empathy I show, all those things, actually, if you hold that, that you know, what we've just identified as to inspire someone to help them realize their own potential in some way makes you a better person because you're more conscious and thoughtful about all those things. You know, what you think, how you think, how you express it, tone, language, actions, behavior, all those things become 
very important online, offline, you know, become important because the intended and unintended consequences of people observing that and seeing that can be absolutely hugely impactful. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I equate that, like knowing or even having an inkling of that as kind of being able to see the North Star, like knowing given life, what I believe life is a journey, you're practically trying to get from point A to point B. You're practically, you've decided, okay, this is kind of my point B. And so now you just have to continuously walk towards it. You don't know how long it'll take. You don't really know how you'll get there, but at least you know you have somewhere to go. Whereas I think earlier on in my career, um, I just didn't know, I didn't have a good idea of what point B was. Mm. And you alluded to how you uh, are also teaching at Waterloo, and I think that's how we also got connected in that way. And it seems from the course, like how you describe the course from our conversations, it's a lot of it also is about, I think, teaching young students about thinking about their point B, like not even having to know it, but just even thinking about, do you even know where you're going? And so how did this uh, teaching actually come about? So, so it came about because I was uh, on the advisory council of the School of Accounting and Finance, which is where you and I both went, I believe. Yeah. Uh, we went. I went a little bit before you. I was the first class to go through that program in a class of 11. You were a little bit, a few years behind me. Um, it came about as a result of having a discussion about Waterloo and the program and students and, and people identifying Waterloo as being fantastic from an educational experience, from a co-op experience. But actually, once they graduate, in terms of their career progression and perhaps we need to do more to arm them with or prepare them with some of the skills that would be helpful. And so I kind of put up my hand and said, we should do something about it. And, and through a series of you know, approaches, I finally said, okay, well, if we're not gonna do something, I'm gonna do something. I created a, a sort of a, a framework for a course that we could try to develop. I got the buy-in of Tom Scott to say, yes, go do it. I volunteered to teach the course, to try it out. We ran it as a pilot five years ago now to a group of third and fourth year students. And the course was all about the stuff, some people call it the soft, the soft skills, but all of this non-technical stuff that are really critical once you graduate from school that really help to determine both your career progression, but I would actually say your sense of fulfillment and meaning and satisfaction as well, your level of happiness or well-being. And so I sort of created this course, we ran it, and the first year we ran it, the feedback was just off the charts. I mean, the students were just just saying incredibly positive things about it. The, the, you, I think you know the nature of the course is, I quote, teach for an hour, but it's really a conversation in an interactive format. And then we bring in guest speakers and those alumni, and we keep it as an open Q&A session. The students are able to ask these alumni any questions they want about their career, what mistakes they made, how they got to where they were, what do they wish they had done, all those questions. And the beauty of that is it's not scripted, it's not rehearsed, it's not prepared. They can be as sort of a, as a provocative or controversial as they want. And then the goal was to bring in speakers from a diverse array of backgrounds. So, you know, CEO of a hospital, someone who's just done a startup, someone who's worked in professional services all their life, someone who's a comedian, someone who runs, whatever those opportunities are, to say, you know what, you might think of your career as a narrow, linear path, it's not. It's never been, but more so today with the nature of work and the demographic and technology and, and other changes, it is not going to be a linear path. We want to expose you to that array of opportunities to build on what Waterloo already does really well. Great, great education, great co-op experience, great integration, but now we're sort of supplementing that with experiential learning 
by both teaching you and giving you exposure to people who are in the real world that can give you that guidance. And so, um, so we started this course really on a whim with really no pedagogical background. And it's been five years in the making, and I think I've shared with you the results from this year, which is the fifth year. And, you know, when you see numbers like, um, you know, I think it was 99% had changed their level of self-confidence about where they want to work. 97% would recommend it to a student, a rating of 3.9 out of 4 in terms of overall rating. And people just, you know, being really, really appreciative of the guest speakers spending their time and so forth. So I think it's a desperate need. It's filling a very vital gap. And when I talk to other universities, no one has said they've got something similar. And everyone says, I wish we had that. That's really important. I wish we had that. And so I think it is really trying to respond to something that's really necessary. And, it, and I see it in my own kids who are 23 and 21, something that they don't have necessarily access to and rely on very, very sometimes very superficial, very scant bits of information about making very important decisions that I think they could really benefit from both self-reflection and understanding of what the opportunities and the roadmap of how to get there. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I think in the States, for example, I think we, you and I talked about this, about how Stanford Graduate School has the Design Your Life program, and I think they talked about how that the people will enroll specifically to, to that school with the idea of doing, I want to do that class. Like, I want to do that oh, singular yeah. class. Um, obviously, a lot of people just want to go to Stanford for many other reasons, but um, the class is actually a big uh, seller. And I think there was another uh, article, I think, some a few months ago about how in the Wharton Business School at University of Pennsylvania, like, the, I think some, it's a similar course. It's a career development course or a career life planning course. And that's considered to be the most popular course in the MBA program as well. And so when I saw the results of your program, it did not surprise me. It's, I think, if we go to the fundamental roots of what universities and schools do is, are supposed to do is to provide value to students for their current stage of life and to help them, I think, set a certain mindset, change any kind of fixed mindset to be a growth mindset. And I agree, I think, that's a course that should be in every university, but just unfortunately isn't. Do you, do you see um, this kind of course being actually, uh, because right now I believe the course is an after-class-based course. Right. Do you see it actually being part of an in-class uh, curriculum in the future? So, so Danny, that question's about the how to deliver the course a little bit. But I think your, your deeper question, if I'm reading between the lines, is really, the content and the elements of the course that we teach. And I think I would answer that question by saying, I think what we try to teach, or, and you and I have spoken about this, is, first of all, a deeper sense of self-reflection about who you are, what you believe, what your values are, what, are you, what you're good at. So it, it really encourages and promotes that. It teaches a lifelong passion for learning, continuous learning, to be a lifelong learner. It teaches elements of having a growth mindset, and it teaches a bunch of other things. And I would say those elements are absolutely essential for long-term success, whether the delivery mechanism is a course of the nature that I teach or whether we need to embed those principles. Because as you know, and the research again shows, if someone is to truly learn, we probably need to reinforce that message, not once, not twice, but three to seven times, right? So I don't think, and this is the same challenge I have with conferences and and conventions, right? You go there, you get inspired, you come back home, 
and nothing changes. So I think we need to embed those elements in different ways and have a continuous pattern of reinforcing with a suite of tools that actually allow people to embrace those in different ways. Because as you know, people are at different points in their journey in terms of their maturation, their self-reflection, their self-awareness, the understanding of what it truly is that drives them um, and all that stuff. So I think we need to give them opportunities at different points in time. I'll just, I'll just reinforce that by when the, the best feedback we got from the students in uh, year three and four in the first year we ran it was, I wish you had done, told me earlier because then I could actually embrace some of these ideas and try stuff to get a better understanding of what I like, what I don't like, why I don't like it, what the opportunities are, how do I get exposed to different people earlier. So during my co-op experiences, I've now got four experiences to draw from before I make a career or pick a, pick a career or a chosen path. That's way more than I would have had if I had stayed with one, one party, one firm, one employer, one industry. And so what I see now is people actually saying, hey, I might be interested in that. I'm going to go try it before making a commitment. And if you think about that Stanford course, which is based on design thinking, what do they, what do they suggest? Try it out. Prototype it. Try it out before making a big bet. And so it's a great way of integrating that design thinking approach by having those elements, those components be taught or expo- get, getting exposure to students a lot earlier in their process. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I completely agree with you in that um, we need having that kind of course or any, any form of that thinking um, in all aspects of our life would be essentially like not just in school, but also in work where companies sh- should have it as part of their culture, as part of their organizational design to continue to ask people, like, um, you know, do you know who you are? Like actually leading them through radical self-inquiry continuously as they grow because the you of last year is not the same you of this year. And... I think when I work with my friends and colleagues in terms of helping them think about their careers, they've we've all kind of graduated now, and so they are hitting that point where, um, you know, I don't know what the student that made that great comment is at right now, but they're in that stage of, uh, you know, if, if if I heard this advice earlier, that would have been great, but now I kind of feel like I'm stuck, and I have to continuously relay out to them that. No, you're not. You're, you've only had about a two to three year career so far. You have another 50, 60 years to live. Really, there's not much of a sunk cost there. You can really switch now if you wanted to. And I think that that just amplifies to me the importance of continuously re- repeating this message and also even tailoring it to the various maturities and stages that people are at. Um, and so in that class, you, I'm sure you, you hear a lot of questions that students ask. What's the best question you think uh, a student has asked, the most memorable one? Huh, let me, let me give that some thought. Yeah. I mean, we typically get questions about, uh, I think the, the, most, the most common question is really about learning from failure and what mistakes have you made that have really caused you to learn or to change your perspective. And so we often get questions about that. Um, I'm trying to think of a very specific question. Um, Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably the, yeah. the one yeah. I, that I'd, I'd say is, I mean, there's all those questions about, uh, you know, the very mundane questions about, should I get my MBA? Should I work in this industry and all that <laughs> stuff, which I, which I always answer, as you know, Daniel, I always answer with, it depends on what's important to you and how you define success and what your strengths are and what you love to do and so forth. But, um, but I think the ones that are most uh, introspective are about, um, yeah, so I'd say learning from failure, but maybe even more broadly about, 
I think you might experience as well with the people you talk to at, at the age you're at, which is taking risks, right? We're, we're actually, we, and I'm going to say we who go into professional, technically oriented programs, whether it's being a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, or something else, generally often go into those programs because it does provide clarity as to a roadmap. It generally provides a safe, secure environment in which to get a job. We're not conditioned necessarily to think about this in the form of taking risks, right? And so I think the questions that relate to learning from failure, but if you haven't failed, does that mean you're not taking enough risks? So the corollary of that question, on the flip side, I think are actually quite instructive about what risk are you willing to take and how do you go about evaluating whether that risk is appropriate and what do you do if that risk that you take learns uh, results in seeming failure. And as you know, we, we don't actually use the word failure very often. We use the analogy of I never fail, either I win or I learn as the answer or antidote to that question about failure. So it's only a failure if you make a mistake and you don't learn from it, then it's failure, but that's the only time. Oh, that's excellent. I think I, think I actually wrote about that this morning in my journal. Oh, did you? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Um, and oh, yeah, I think uh, the question I wanted to ask you, I was hoping to you know, turn that question on you, around on you, but um, a variation that I like to ask people is, so what would you say is the largest uh, obstacle you had to overcome in your career so far? So I think for me, and it, it will definitely be different from people who grow up in today's environment, but for me, I think the largest obstacle was coming to the realization, and again, this is an afterthought, I was probably not smart enough to know it at the time, but to realize that in the world that I was entering, which is a business world where there is, a, I'm going to say, a high level of tradition, and we're just starting to scratch the surface now in terms of bias, unconscious and conscious bias and so forth, is that I sort of came to the realization that in order to succeed in the business world that I want to operate in, that um, that I'd have to work twice as hard, that it would have to be twice as good in order for people to make the decision to say, no, it's not a risk to go with, with Upcar versus someone else, even though I did not look like them, even though I didn't necessarily come from the same cultural or economic, socioeconomic background as them. So I think it was... I think it was just that acknowledgement. And so even today, I'd say um, I think we've got a lot more work to do, and I hopefully want to be a part of doing that work that continues to to break down some of these barriers and provide that access and opportunity for people to actually, you know, to, to become who they're capable of becoming. Um, but, the, but yet they don't face the same challenges, and so they probably don't think about it as deliberately or as thoughtfully. So I'd just say overcoming that inherent bias and overcoming it in a way that does and has not, and I would be really clear on this, has not resulted in anger or in bitterness or in blame or antagonism. It's just the environment I grew up in. It's just the environment I had to deal with. I was very fortunate to have people who believed in me, had confidence in me, and provided me with those opportunities. And so it just became a part of what I needed to do to demonstrate that I was worthy of their confidence and that it, it was a good decision on their part. So um, I think that's really the part. So when students or people who are young um, haven't come through that, it might be harder for them to believe that that's really important. But at its core, I'd sort of summarize it in work world to say, there are still some essential parts no matter where you come from and no matter what you're doing. You do have to do good work, right? You have to deliver something. You do want to do something, and your level of engagement will rise with the level of passion you feel about that work. So it's really good to be doing something you actually feel is interesting. 
you do want to have coherence or alignment so that you don't feel you're doing something that's opposed to what you believe in. So that's always good to do. And you always want to put yourself in positions where you have the opportunity to learn from people. And then I think you want, at least I believe anyway, you want to be a continuous learner, not just in a professional world or a professional, from a professional perspective, but from a personal perspective. And that means actually living the values you believe in about being open to other people, listening well, being attentive, being respectful, being civil, and actually finding ways to, to create bridges, not barriers, to help others succeed. So that, that, that last piece I will just reinforce because it is really a cornerstone, which is sort of the gratitude piece. And I think you and I talked about Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, which to me was an affirmation of certainly what I believe, which is when you start to do things for the benefit of other people, a few things happen. One is you get tremendous joy and fulfillment. B, you actually improve yourself way more than you think you are and you learn from others in a way. And C, you actually continue to have a sense of contentment that you do have a lot to be grateful for, right? So that whole concept of gratitude and giving, I think, needs to somehow infuse our thinking that can only arise if we have empathy for other people and believe that what we do matters and has an impact to other people. And obviously, we want that impact to be positive. So it makes us better people, I think. No, I, I 100% agree. I think right now with me doing all these different ventures, like writing my weekly blog, doing the podcast, sometimes I'll hit the point of asking myself, why am I doing all this stuff? You know, for you know, It's not really a job. And some and there are times when I get these emails randomly from people who thank me for like an article specifically or the podcast specifically saying, this was very impactful and this really helped me out in this XYZ way. And yeah, like that kind of, I, you know, I gave and the gratitude that they provide me with um, makes it even more meaningful that I continue to do what I do. And I think, yeah, like that, the idea of the give and take and just continuously giving, um, especially in the areas that you're passionate in, areas that you are strong in, um, are yeah, definitely key pillars that I think a lot of people would do well to have in their uh, part of their minds. And the idea of, I think, that whole concept is part of impact investing and uh, that you are so passionate about now. And how, how would you say impact investing is um, similar or dissimilar from what we traditionally might know as like venture capital investing, which is also similarly like in early stage investing, um, but with the impact overlay? Is it like a profit-based difference or like how you look at companies difference, like a criteria set? How would you explain that? So I think I'd explain it by, and, and whether it's early stage, VC, or late stage, or geographically, you know, or industry or sector oriented, what I would say is that the key difference I'd start off with is intentionality. And the intentionality says, I'm investing for the purpose of generating a return plus impact from the outset. So what I, I sort of don't buy into is if I invest in something and it produces a great return and a byproduct of that return happens to be that some lives happen to be improved in the process. And this is the argument of investing in a country where you make a zillion dollars and you leave behind access to you know, mobile technology or, wi- or Wi-Fi or something. Is that impact investing? Well, it did have an impact. The question is, did you do it with forethought and, and deliberateness and intention? Or was it happenstance, right? And did it sway your decision as to would you invest or would you not invest? And so I'd go back to say 
The elements of rigor and discipline and approach we need to take are similar between regular investing and impact investing. We still need to invest in the best companies that are scalable, that are going to be very thoughtful about how they grow and scale and build their businesses and are around for the long term. So we definitely need to be focused on investing in the right companies that meet our personal goals. The difference is then we also do an overlay of impact, and often that impact is personal. So if you believed in women's empowerment or income inequality or water or you know something, then we try to do an overlay that's more mission aligned to what your belief or your area of interest or passion is. It could be related to sustainable development goals, but it doesn't need to be. To say, I really believe we've got a fundamental issue in women not having access to you know, educational opportunities in, uh, in uh, Afghanistan or you know, whatever it is. Uh, so we can align that investing to be consistent with and congruent with where you want your money to go. And I think if all of us were more thoughtful about where we invest, not just in terms of where we give, and we're great givers in Canada in terms of where we donate to charities, but where we invest our money can have a huge impact in terms of where capital goes, where capital goes will have an impact on what issues, systemic or otherwise, environmental and social, we're able to address because we get capital focused in the right areas to the right companies dealing with the right systemic issues where we can make a difference. And so definitely passionate about it because I think governments don't have the means or the political will um, to make those changes. We've got a rising class of philanthropists. We've got money concentrated in a smaller number of hands, and so we need to use that investment potential to channel that to have a really significant impact on trying to solve some of the social issues that if we solve those really would be better for all of us. Mm -hmm. And I think there's definitely a growing awareness of the impact side for sure. Like when I was um, in my uh, hedge fund, we had a whole new criteria for environmental and social governance standards when we invest in companies. Obviously, that was more of a secondary to our main goal, but just today in the waiting room, I read about how Casa de Depot, the pension fund for Quebec, invested in Al Gore's impact-based fund as well. And so I think that's definitely an area that um, does need a lot of awareness and is getting an increased amount of um, eyes on it. And unfortunately, I think we were kind of running near the end of the interview. And so I think I'll... You know, I might uh, have you on as a part two later on for me to like, dig further into the impact investing side, which sure, I'd love to learn about. Sure, pleasure. Um, but I'd like to ask some fin- final questions to all our podcast guests. And so uh, the question I'd like to ask you is, if your 20-year-old self were to look at where you are now, so imagine like a third year of car in Waterloo, what do you think the emotional reaction would be? I think if I was being, um, I think if I was being fair, I would say it would be generally a positive reaction, and it would be based on and something we I think our our kids and you know some amazing people I see in the classes demonstrate um, starts off with two or three things. One is so I'll look at uh, alignment with your values. That would be one. The second is a bias to action or propensity to act to. It's one thing to believe in something. It's another thing to actually do something about it. And so the call to action of we're not here talking about, wouldn't it be great if someone did something about investing for social impact? No, we're actually going out and doing it. So that bias to action would be, would be positive. 
The third is being a global citizen, being concerned about the welfare of people, not just because they're of your community, they are of your, of your gender, or, but really being conscious about when we make a distinction between creating different styles and communities, especially in today's world, and this is the kind of stuff we deal with at Institute for Canadian Citizenship, but when we make those styles of differentiation, irrespective of what those differences are, age, gender, or whatever, um, it creates less empathy and uh, less discourse and less coming together. And so as a society, we need to build better bridges through creation of that. So I think I would say I am translating my values into doing something that is hopefully positive, hopefully meaningful. But certainly I can say that whether I got paid and I don't get paid for a lot of the stuff uh, that I do, whether I got paid or not, I would do it anyway. And then if I did applied that test that I gave you earlier about do I have the freedom to choose I would say I do, and for that I'm really grateful and really blessed. So I would say you have achieved that goal that you set out of having the freedom to choose where and how and when and with whom you choose to spend your time, your money, and your resources. Oh, excellent. And is there any piece of advice that you would have liked to have had when you were 20 or would like to give to that 20-year-old of car? Sure. So what I might do is I might uh, steal from my own speech that I gave to the co as a commencement speech to the graduates of the school this year, and I tried to synthesize it into three key points very, very quickly. The first one is define success in your own way. There's no standard definition, universal definition of what success is. Define it in your own way. The second is life is not a linear path, explore the possibilities, meaning try stuff, explore as a way of learning and understanding. And the third is humanity above all, that everything we do, every time we work or we do things, it should be in the context of making a difference in people's lives and not forgetting that, especially when we do have the separation between online and offline, but really remembering the impact we can have and should have thinking about what connects us as opposed to what divides us and therefore being conscious about humanity and the things that really, really do uh, bind us together as human beings. Amazing. Excellent. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. I've Pleasure. Talked. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I really had a great, great time today and I really do hope the audience uh, gets a lot of value out of it just like I did. Great. Thanks, you, Dan. Thank, Thank you, Daniel. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.